I thought Liam would like this one, Revelation chapter 12. You'd like this one, Liam, because, well, if you read through the chapter, it reads like the trailer to the new forthcoming film out of the Lord of the Rings series, The Hobbit. Dragons, uh, weird women, um, people being born, and mess, and war, and bang, and crash. What's all that got to do with you and me? Well, I, hope, I want to try and get to, to it, because um, I think you'll find that with this, this, this chapter has great power in explaining what you and me face every day, what our experience is in life. But I want to sort of come at it from a funny angle. Okay, so I want to start off by just asking you whether you've ever been, uh, like I have, had one of those conversations, and it seems to be going great, and you get on with somebody, and you wondered whether you know, you'd have that sort of connection there, and it's just started to to work, you feel at ease, you feel relaxed, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, bang, some comment, some random comment, and you think, whoa, where did that thing come from? What was that all about? What's going on there? And suddenly it hits you that, well, whilst you've been going about your business of just having a chat with somebody, there was something deeper going on. There was a subplot. There was... Well, in the midst of that con- con- uh, conversation, they've got another agenda to be working on. And you're like, whoa, I feel a little bit threatened by that. What's that all about? There was something deeper behind the pleasantries. And that's a, bit, a, a lame and weak example of what is going on, or what we've been shown is going on here in Revelation chapter 12. Because you and me go on with the pleasantries, with the things of life every day, but this chapter of the Bible is telling us that below that, there's something going on. There's something, if you like, going on behind what we see and we experience every day. And it tells us that it's a battle. And it's a battle that we're caught up in. It's a bit of a drama. Now, that's the experience of Revelation chapter 12. It's a window into something that has been going on all along, whether you have seen it or not. And the reason we've got Revelation 12 is so that you can see it, so that you can be prepared and forearmed for it, and when you see it, this is the great thing I've had this week, as I've been digging into this, as you see it, it's got great power to explain why life is so difficult, it's got great power to just cast light onto what has actually been going on in your life and in my life, so let me ask you this, how's your Christian life going? Some of you, you'll be like, you know what, we're doing okay, we're plodding along, I'm growing a little bit, I'm learning the Bible, I'm facing a few struggles, but do you know what, things seem to be working out okay, and may the Lord bless you if that's the case. And for others of you, it's not the case, it's like, hold on, I don't even know whether I can get through another day naming the name of Jesus. If you knew what I'd done, or if they knew at church what I'd done and what I would like, they wouldn't allow me in through the door. Can I tell you, according to Revelation chapter 12, that is almost normal Christian experience. Because what we're about to find in Revelation chapter 12 is that there is a cosmic struggle between Satan and God and his people. And Satan is raging and hell-bent on doing damage. Doing it publicly and doing it quietly. He'll do the big fancy show and he'll do the subtle undermining of the stuff that helps you and me keep on going. Behind the mundane, Satan is trying to crush you and me if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's trying to shut people up who speak about Jesus. He's trying to get society to mock the idea of Jesus. 
he is engaged in a cruel and wicked battle. And what am, what am I telling you? Well, I'm telling you this. I was trying to think of a stark way without being overly dramatic. So I'll just say it this way. Life is not a game, is it? You know that and I know that. But sometimes we treat it as if it's just a game. Can I tell you that heaven is real? Can I tell you that hell is real? And as much as they try to medicate us through the telly this Christmas into just being happy and just going buy or eat your way into or just medication that makes us forget, this chapter of the Bible holds up before us and says, listen, life is not a game. There is an enemy of your soul who wants to crush you and the impact is something that you will not recover from if he has his way. This is not a game. And some of you, even though you've been listening to the Bible plenty of times, you're like, oh no, come on, seriously, Steve, you believe this stuff? I mean, the devil, do you really believe that, Steve? And have you seen him? Have you seen his demons causing havoc? Have you seen that, Steve? And I can say, no. But just as when I was a lad, and my mum used to tell me about electricity, and I saw the results of electricity, so too, my God, in his word, the Bible, shouts at us, Satan is there, and when I look into the world, I see the results of his handiwork. We're playing for keeps. And when you suddenly get that worldview, everything gets explained. But of course, in our culture, you know, we're very arrogant, so don't be surprised if the enemy of our soul has gone underground. He's not prancing around in the middle of Trafalgar Square or down Church Street in Liverpool in an obvious way. Whereas there are certain places in the world where his work is evidenced and people actually live in fear and pray against the work of the enemy. They work, pray against the work of his, um, of his demonic horde because they're scared of us in our cocking out of it. Primitive, not interested. But the Lord once again corrects our gaze. Now you don't need to tell me, or sorry, I don't need to tell you that your life is a drama. Sometimes it's a battle and sometimes it's a struggle. Almost unnaturally so, isn't it? Where did that come from? What's going on there? Did I really say that? Did they really say that to me? How come it's always a battle and a struggle? And Revelation chapter 12 shows us and tells us why. So are you ready? Let's go. We're going to have to see three things. We're going to see in verses 1 to 6, this cosmic battle. Number uh, 2, we're going to see in verses 7 through to 12, the victory in heaven. And then we're going to see, to the end of the chapter, the battle here on earth now. And I'm going to go, just go as far as I can. I'm not, I don't want to go too long, so I'll stop if I just run out of time. But I want you to see this cosmic battle. It's very vivid and it's very clear. Okay, so number 1, the cosmic battle, verses 1 through to 6. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert 
to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. That's it. It's vivid and clear, isn't it? And there are three main characters. The first one we see is this woman. Now, I'm going to tell you, ahead of time, this woman and the women in the Bible, or the woman in the Bible, is often, countless times in the Bible, a reference to God's people. His people, Israel in the Old Testament, and his people... Uh, in the New Testament who trusted in Jesus. So if you like, this woman symbolises God's people down through time. The pe- if you like, the people of the promise. Way back in the Garden of Eden when Satan lied uh, and made people turn away from God, there was the promise of by God that through the seed of the woman, his people would come one who would be a rescuer. This is a picture of God's people down through history. And look at the description. You can imagine in your mind's eye, it's, it's so vivid, isn't it? There's this woman, and she is clothed with the sun. In other words, she's splendid in God's eyes, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on the head. She's royal. She's got this standing in the heavenlies. And out of her, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Out of her would come the, the second character we're about to see. Oh, sorry, the third character. We'll get back to that third character in a minute. But the second character, verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. Anybody got a clue as to who that is? How do you know? Because he sounds nasty and because you've heard verse 9 read further down. That great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or... Satan, who led the whole world astray. I love it when the Bible tells us what these pictures mean. This great red dragon is a picture of what Satan does and is. And in fact, there's a whole stack of times in the Old Testament where various world powers who have come against God and his people are described as beasts or dragons. So, make it quick. Huh? I've told you we'll get to him in a minute. Brilliant. Good question. We're afraid we get spoken of in a second, so I thought I'd do him third. Is that right? Good. So there's countless times in the Old Testament where nations that stand and come against God's people are described as beasts or dragons. So Pharaoh, do you remember Pharaoh when he tried to destroy God's people in Egypt? Or else Babylon, when they came to try and crush God's people, is described as a dragon. You could even say that Herod would be a dragon. And these nation states and these people who come against God, uh, these forces that come against God's people, we're supposed to understand that standing behind them is Satan. They are like puppets in his hands and his purpose is to do, or what Linda just asked about, destroy the child. Can you see that there? Verse 5. Uh, well, verse 5 she gave birth to a son a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne so using the uh, phraseology that comes out of Psalm 2 that talks about the Messiah God's own son coming and ruling over the nations we get the whole of the incarnation Jesus birth, life, death, resurrection and ascension all piled into just that one little verse there. She gave birth to a son. So out of God's people, admittedly through the womb of Mary, out of God's people, this nation that had been battling, being oppressed and pushed down and got at by Satan, out of God's people comes the Messiah, the rescuing ruler of the world, 
She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the reason it's only one verse for the whole of the incarnation is because in Revelation, it's already been talked through. The cross, the life of the Lord Jesus, his resurrection and his ascension has already been unpacked. So it's been taken for granted in this verse because the focus goes back onto who in verse 6? The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. The focus of this chapter is on the fact that God's people, now the king has come, conquered, reigned and ascended, are in a period where Satan is raging against them. He can't get at the Lord Jesus, so he's going to get at the Lord Jesus' people. That phrase there, 1,260 days, or as we saw in chapter 11 and 10, three and a half years, or 42 months, or times, times, and half a times, uh, that doesn't mean anything to you and me, but we talked about this in our fellowship group the other week. It's very vivid and important. If I say the word 9-11, what does that mean to you? A car. You're thinking 9-11, okay. Somebody correct Alan, you can tell he's thinking cars. What are you thinking about? The Twin Towers. If I say um, Holocaust, what do you think of? Jewish people getting killed. If I say Katrina, what do you think of? Hurricane? Katrina and the waves, okay. You're really not helping here, bless you, brother. <laughs> Go back to your wedding planning, please. Very positive. I just say one word and it immediately makes you think of those various things, whether it's a terrorist attack, whether it's, it, it's annihilation of six million people, whether it's natural disaster. Back in the first century, if you said to a Jew, three and a half years, which is the same as 1,260 days, or 42 months, or times, times, and half a time, you don't know what they were thinking, but they do. Immediately, in their mind, they think of a period of intense persecution, struggle and suffering that was limited in, 1000, uh, in, in the year 1069 BC where there was a particularly cruel pagan ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes IV who had taken control of the Jewish um, uh, capital, Jerusalem, and the temple area there. He made it a capital offence to be a Jew. You ever put your hand up and said you're a Jew? Off with your head. He made it a capital offence to own any of the Bible. You were found to have any of the Old Testament scriptures off with your head. He made it a capital offence for uh, a Jew to even be near the, the temple area or try and do some, some of the rituals off with your head. And God's people were crushed and pushed down and oppressed by this overruled force. You could always say Satan was behind him. So whenever we find in the book of Revelation either three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, or the phrase times, times, and half a times, it always means the same thing. A period of intense suffering where God's people are oppressed, but the time is limited. God has made sure it doesn't go on forever. Do you see? And so here, this is the drama that is playing out. We find God's people who love him and follow him and are esteemed by him are under the attack of Satan and his minions, often in the form of uh, prominent powers and people in the world 
and also through the fact that he is called Satan, which means he's the accuser, he's the adversary who wants to undermine our confidence in the gospel. And this child has come, this one who will rule the nations, the Lord Jesus is here, he has conquered, he is victorious, but whilst we wait for his final return, Satan's going to rage against us. Now that is the backdrop that starts to make sense of so much of what you experience. You've always known your life's been a drama. You always have known that doing church is a drama. But here, the the Bible confirms why. This is big. This is the drama of all history. This is how we make sense of who we are as people. This plays out in the big and the small. Why is it that it's so hard to talk to people and speak about Jesus? We're really not that bad at it because we're in a spiritual battle. Why is it that people just cut us off and go back to playing with their toys? Because we're in a spiritual battle. And you're in that. It tells us a few things. You're part of it. It tells us that if you're a believer today, any myth that you've heard that if trust in Jesus and he'll give you what you want and you have a great life, Well, that ain't going to be the case. You're going to be in a battle. I'm going to be in a drama. I'm going to be in a struggle, aren't you? That's straight off the bat. But the Lord wants you to know about this battle so that you can be prepared for it. Back in the first century, the first people who received this letter, the book of Revelation, they looked around them and what they saw was masses of false religion, worshipping anything other than God. These ideas about where you find life and how you live and who you are as people. And it was all around them and it felt like it was pressing in and crushing them. And that sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? All around them, there were oppressive authorities who said, this is what you should think, this is what you should believe. There was a totalitarian state that was a bit different to ours. There are some totalitarian uh, states that have secret police and go around and if you don't toe the line, they kill you. Our totalitarian state is run by our media that says you must believe and think like we do or we'll ostracise you push you aside and make it so difficult for you. And they face that, and so do we. We are in the midst of a battle. False religion, corrupt governments and persecutions. This is beginning to crank up in the UK. It's already abundant in other parts of the world. And here's why we're under the attack of Satan. But perhaps here you're not deciding whether you're a believer or not, whether you belong to Jesus, whether you want to trust him for forgiveness and a new start, can I just make something really plain to you? And it gives me no joy to say this, but I need to be very plain. If this bit of the Bible is to believe, it means you've already picked a side. There's nobody on the subs bench. Everybody's in the game somewhere. And if you haven't picked Jesus yet, it means by default you've picked the other side. You're in the midst of it, and I just want to encourage you out of what is being said to the earth, that you need to wake up. Please, we are playing for keeps. This is serious. There is a real enemy of our soul. He wants to deceive you and he wants to deceive me. And if you have a moment of clarity, you need to jump on board with the Lord Jesus. Because we're about to see the final outcome. We're about to see what happens in the midst of this battle. So we're going to go to our second point, which is verses 7 through to 12, the victory in heaven. So look down there and we'll read that again. 
And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven, and the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. You need to know this, if you are to keep going and not be overcome. There's one of these strange things that goes on here, that goes on in the book of Revelation. We've seen it a couple of times, where one minute, you see one thing, and then the second later, you hear another. You see one thing, and you hear another, and it's basically the same thing, but just with picture language. So what do we see here? We see here a big, a big row between the angels. You can imagine them with their angelic swords, and their bows, and their big muscly bits, and their thing, and then they're having an almighty scrap. Yeah, on the, on, in the one corner you've got Michael, he's on the goodie side. Then on the other side you've got Satan and all his gang on the other side. And they have this massive scrap in heaven. That's what you see, but what you hear, well it's verse 10. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him, how? By the strength of the angels? By Michael being the dude? Nope. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What are we to make of this? Answer, Satan has defeated. And we get a picture, if you like, of a heavenly counterpart of a battle in heaven and Satan getting hurled down. But we're left in no doubt that the place where this victory was won was by Jesus on the cross. Do you get that? We've seen the heavenly counterpart of a big scrap hurled down, but it was on the ground of what Jesus did at the cross. And for those of you who know your gospel reasonably well, in John's gospel, the night, two nights before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus stands up in front of the disciples and he says this, Now the judgment of this world is come, and now the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast down. So from the mouth of Jesus... Where is it that the devil gets hurled down, cast down, and his plans are scuppered eternally? Answer, at a rather pathetic looking cross that stood just outside the city of Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. That was the defining moment of all of history where Jesus won the battle. The real victory by General Jesus on the field was at the cross so that Staff Sergeant Michael of the angels can remove Satan's flag from in heaven. See what's happened there? It's a vivid image that, that Jesus has won and all those angelic forces that have stood against him have been hurled down, flattened once and for all. And it was in the past. Is this a short question? Brilliant. We're going to find that in a minute. Hold on. Okay. Hurled down to earth, and we'll find out about that in just a second, alright? 
So what does this tell us? It tells us that you and me don't do spiritual warfare. You know, sometimes you even go to Christian bookshops and you'll find a book on spiritual warfare. No, we don't do spiritual warfare. It's not our job to win the victory over Satan. Who did that? Jesus has won the victory over Satan. It has been done already. Our job is to declare it. We declare it to the world out there and we declare it to our hearts when we feel under attack. We don't win the victory. Jesus did it. Let's live in it, people. That's what we're being told here. We live in the victory of Jesus. We declare it, the fact that, uh, that Jesus has overcome and defeated Satan. The future banishment of evil is without question. The final victory of the true king is guaranteed. But to help with Kathy's question, I'll give the example of D-Day. Ron will be able to tell you all about this. D-Day in the Second World War, when the Allied forces invaded Europe, there was only one way the war was going to be won. Uh, the only one, um, one way the world war was going to go. It was only a matter of time. We defeated them on the beaches. We pushed the beachhead into northern France. We had the biggest armada landing on... Um, uh, uh, biggest invasion force the world has ever known landing on northern France. Hitler was being um, crushed from the east by the Russians. Hitler's day was done. The battle, the decisive battle, was won. But he put up a fight all the way to Berlin, didn't he? The outcome was never in question. But just maybe because of malice and rage and fury, he kept on fighting. The cross is our D-Day. Jesus has triumphed. And Satan, because he's full of malice, is still working against God's people. Do you see that? And they probably don't even realise it. There's one of them. Or sometimes it's... The, Satan's influence is pressed in through lies, through cruel actions, through political forces, through um, TV advertisement that tells you where to find life. Get this yoghurt, you'll look shiny and slim. Come on, buy the yoghurt. I believe it. And it doesn't work. Do you see? At every level, saints' lies are at work to turn us away from putting all our hope and all our trust in Jesus. But Jesus' victory is guaranteed for it was won at the cross. And so I want to go in and I want to have a little just dig around in here just for a few moments so you can see it. Look, three truths about Jesus' victory you need to see. Oh, by the way, verse 10. When they know Jesus won, what do they do? Then a loud voice in heaven says, Now the kingdom of, um, uh, now, now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. What do they do? They sing. They shout. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and all who dwell in them. They start to sing because Jesus has won and his ultimate victory is assured. But the three truths you need to know about that victory to keep your life going in the meantime are found in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Three things. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Firstly, God's people, knowing that Satan was coming against them, needed to find some way to overcome. 
And the question was, were they going to overcome on the basis of something they brought to the table or on the basis of something Jesus had done? Notice that Satan is an accuser, verse 10. He's the accuser of our brothers. It's almost as if in the heavenlies there's a picture of a courtroom. And then Satan's standing there as the prosecuting attorney. You know that Steve Casey? He's a scumbag, he is. Calls himself a pastor, calls himself a Christian. If they knew what he did, you see, how, do you, how can you countenance having him around you? He is guilty, guilty, guilty of this, 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 this. Is Satan right? Oh, come on, you know me. Is Satan right? Yes! <laughs> Amen, sister. Satan is dead right. I cannot overcome the accusations of Satan because Satan's telling the truth about me and he's telling the truth about you. So I can't stand there in the dock going, oh, well, I didn't really mean it or I'm not as bad as Kathy or I'm not as bad as Vi or I'm not as bad as Alan. I can't, am I going to overcome Satan with that? Oh, please. That's like a pea shooter. I need a big gun. Hold on. Listen. Listen, I'm probably getting there. So I am stuffed and I've got no choice. The accusations of Satan for once are true. And I'm being accused before the bar of God's grace. How can I overcome? How can I stand? Answer. On the grounds of the blood of Jesus. The Lord God looks at Satan and goes, I know he's a scumbag. I know he's failed. I know he's guilty. But my son shed his blood that he could be cleansed. All the condemnation that you would visit down on Steve Casey or Vi or Kathy or Alan, all of it has been spent on Jesus. I'm a just and a right God. I will not punish that sin twice. It has been punished and paid for and the debt has been cancelled. They have been set free. You can accuse him all you like, but you can't touch him. Because I've bought him, and he's mine forever. And that is the gospel message. And that's the same, not just in the heavenly court, but it's before the court of our own hearts as well. Because which of us don't worry from time to time and hear that voice in our head that says, well, you're not worth anything, are you? What's more, everybody else knows it. No one could ever love you. Don't bother Fighting on in your marriage, what's the point? It's not going to work. Don't be honest at work. I mean, come on, we know what you want to do. Just give way to it, go for it. Don't open yourself up to other believers so they can encourage you. They'll only just hurt you. Where have those lies come from? The accuser. The accuser. He's out to lie to us. That's not the voice of God saying those things. That's the lies of the enemy at work in our hearts. How are you going to overcome those? I'll try harder. No, you can overcome them on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. You are worth something because he would give the very best he had to save you. You are made clean, though your sins be as scarlet, because Jesus has wiped away the consequences. You are more loved than you ever, ever imagined. This is the gospel message. This is our gospel hope. 
So listen, when you feel guilty next, and Satan wants to try to make you feel guilty, if you're a believer in him, you need to make sure you do two things. Number one, you need to make sure you've grasped this. Number two, you need to make sure you've taken your stand on it, and it is more important than other things to you. Because usually, most of the hurts, upsets, pains, struggles, guilt trips that you go on, are because you don't do those two things. One of the two is missing. You've got to say, let's, I know this, so I'm going to go there. But second of all, I'm actually going to take my stand on it. It's going to be the most important thing to me. This gospel that Jesus' blood has overcome for me. And so some people will come to me and they'll say, Steve, I know God forgives me. But I just can't forgive myself. And that sounds really humble, doesn't it? But it's incredibly arrogant. I know God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. So... Let me ask you this. Whose opinion matters most to you, yours or God's? Should be, shouldn't it? But sometimes in our arrogance, it's like, well, we say things like, well, I've got high standards, you know. So you're telling me that your standards are higher than God's? Is that what you're telling me? Now, what we have there, we might have an understanding of what Jesus did at the cross, but functionally, what do we value most? Not that he sets us free and says, you're all right with me, the fact that we've got a standard that we want to live up to because we want to save ourselves. And no wonder we get crushed with guilt and failure and a sense of our own undeservingness because we're not trying to overcome the accusations of Satan on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. We're trying to overcome it on the grounds of the splendour of Steve. And that is not big enough to overcome Satan. It is Jesus who has won the victory. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, some of you have read that story countless times, he used to feel so crushed and so guilty and so bad. As a pastor, he was in the Bible an awful lot and he could see how much he had failed. And it wasn't until one day, and I've told you this story countless times, it wasn't until one day, just randomly, he'd been praying and saying, Lord, I don't know whether I'm even a Christian anymore. And he was walking through a field and he had something of a vision. (laughs) Although it wasn't a vision, he just had a sense of something and it was as if, he stood up, looked up, and there in the clouds were written, your righteousness is in heaven for you. And he stopped and he thought about it. And he said, for all my life, I've been trying to be my righteousness. I've been trying to be the ground on which I overcome. I'm good enough. I can deliver. No wonder I feel empty, lost, and useless. No, lo- lo- no wonder I feel overcome. No wonder it feels as if the devil's right. But then he realised... Who was in heaven? And who had given him a right standing, a righteousness? Jesus. And in that moment, his chains fell off, his heart was free, he rose, went forth, and praised the Lord. You need to do that too in that moment when Satan comes against you, whether it's in the form of a guilty conscience or whether it's in the form of somebody criticising you and getting in your face. You need to take a stand, stand on the blood of the Lamb. That's what the Christians down through history have done. That is the way we overcome. We overcome on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. Oh, I'm running out of time, so I've done that one to death, so I've got to go even faster. I'm going to try and finish within five minutes. What does it say next? Here we see in verse 11. They overcame him, how? By the blood of the Lamb, and secondly, by the word of their testimony. What does that mean? It means they stood up and talked about what Jesus had done for them in being the one who died in their place and is the risen Saviour. How do you overcome Satan in speak? 
But what you do is you come up with a great plan and a great program of how to be nice to people. You put on Christmas fairs and you build a building and you start to be kind to everybody. And Satan stands there laughing. And it's not bad to do all those things. And you're like, hold on, Steve, haven't you told us to do them? Yeah, but that's not how you overcome Satan. You overcome Satan by preaching Jesus to people. That's how you do it. You preach Jesus to people in the context of relationship, but you preach Jesus. That's what gets the job done. And we don't even need relationship, although that's a common way to do it. Because there have been plenty of times when somebody out of the blue has just heard the message of Jesus, bang, on the spot, converted. We are told, front and centre, this is the way you overcome and unpack the work of the enemy. You preach Jesus. You do it lovingly. You do it engagingly. You do it thoughtfully. And so there have been plenty of times down through church history where the church has tried to wrestle power politically or socially. And that's great. That's not a bad time to try and do good. That's not bad. But the thing that overcomes Satan is when you declare Jesus and give people a chance to repent and experience his forgiveness. That is what this verse of the Bible tells us to do. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And thirdly and finally here, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They physically put their life on the line for Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That's what it would have looked like in the first century and that's what it looks like in this century in other parts of the world. People love Jesus and say, I'm so safe in him that you can take my life. And at that point you're all like, phew, we're not living under that now. And yet we remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he says, this is what it looks like to follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. In other words... Put your life on the line, even if not physically, put it in my hands every day. See, what does our culture teach us to do? Our culture teaches us to leverage and angle and twist every situation to our advantage, to get our goals and to get our achievements and to get our priorities in place. Live a comfy life. Try and do a little bit if there's any spare time, energy, money around the outside. But basically, build your life for you And if necessary, even be prepared to kill other people to get it. To walk over other people who might need help. In order that you can pursue your goals, your aims, leverage everything for you. And Jesus says, the way they overcame Satan was they spent their life for other people. Like Jesus had spent his life for them. Now my guess is that none of us in this room are probably going to be asked to put our physical life on the line. But every day, the Lord Jesus calls us to die to serve himself. And every day ask questions about how am I going to spend my life for the good of other people? Part of that, as Kathy says, will be by building relationships with them. Part of that will be serving people who are thankless. And as I thought on this, you know, I'm so encouraged What's some news about money for you? And you know, Kosh spoke to the whole church family, he spoke to the, the members recently. And the news is that in the last 12 months, out, just out of 
the people who come here, we now have an extra £20,000 a year being handed in for gospel work and gospel ministry. And we are a church with many beans to rub together, are we? That's mainly come from the leaders and the members and then a little bit more broadly from people who are attached around the outsides. 20 grand! So people have said, I could spend it on this, this, this or this, but I want to lay down my finances for the glory of Jesus to multiply word ministry so we can talk about Jesus all the more. And that is how Satan gets overcome. And then at the same time, I need to push this one back to you because there's something else that I see. The way we use it, whether it's our time, our money and our energy, says about what we trust and what we believe. So I realise that some of you are under great pressure to spend loads and loads of money on your kids at Christmas. So some of you will spend two, three, four, five hundred quid on each kid. And I just want to ask you a question. That's fine. But if you spend that much on each kid at Christmas, but don't contribute anything or barely anything to the word ministry coming out of this church, what lesson have you taught your children about what is valuable in life? You see where I'm coming from on that? You see, our choices say and show where we take our stand, where our confidence is, what we believe, what we think will last. And we're being told here that rather than being slapped about by Satan, there are these three things. This is what it looks like to overcome and stand in the victory of Jesus. Number one, when we feel accused, we go to the cross. He has overcome for us. Number two, we, well it says it there, doesn't it? We, we, we overcome him by the word of our testimony. We speak about Jesus because we know that is what ultimately flattens Satan. Number three, we give our lives away. We look different in our priorities to everybody else around us. And in some parts of that world, that means you put your life on the line. Why? Because we are secure, wrapped up in his grace and his mercy. About 25 years ago, a missionary built a church in a place called Kaduna in, the, in northern Nigeria. And he built a little church in a village. Uh, and one day, people had been becoming Christians, and one day a gang of youths carrying machetes burst into the church while they were meeting to hear the Bible taught. One of the village leaders, who had been just a Christian for about four years, stood up to confront them as they stood there with machetes. He's got more courage than I would have. And he looked at them with an earnestness and a seriousness that made them stop in their tracks. He said, young man, see over there? Those are our crops. You can burn them if you like. Young man, here are our homes. Tear them down if you absolutely must. He opened up his shirt and said, there you go. You can take our lives, kill us choose but you cannot you cannot you cannot take our Christ from us and it could have gone either way on that occasion the invaders turned tail and they fled but at least an equal number and probably more so of times when that has happened people who stand for Jesus stand against Satan, have been cut down and they're secure in glory for all of eternity.
We've gone long and I haven't got time to finish the chapter, but it's enough to say this. When God takes his people into that wilderness place, it's a place of struggle, but it is a place of his care, where he will guard and he will keep. So as a sum up, what's this supposed to mean for us as a church today? Number one, we're in a real battle. Don't believe TV land. They're trying to medicate you into spiritual lethargy. And it's so intoxicating. There is some good stuff out there that isn't bad and is enjoyable. And suddenly, before you realise it, bang! You're living as everybody else who doesn't know Jesus. There will be casualties of war. And perhaps you feel like you're the walking wounded right now. Perhaps you do. Well, how are you going to overcome? It won't be by your strength because you're not strong enough. But Jesus is. You overcome on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb by speaking his word and by laying down your life and trusting him. There will be times when our church will be attacked and we will be attacked. There will be the saint trying to get in there with disunity, discouragement, criticism. He'll try and get us to believe lies. He'll pull us off course one way or another. He'll try to do that. How will we overcome? How will we keep going? Answer. On the grounds of the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony about Jesus, and by laying down our lives. Can I tell you one of the biggest encouragements about being part of our church family is that we don't squabble and quibble over what colour the cups are, over what the curtains look like, over what style of music. Can I tell you why? It's because we've got a church that front and centre puts the blood of the Lamb, the testimony of Jesus, encourages one another to lay down our lives. If those things are central, the little things fall away, don't they? In fact, the second we start to squabble over silly little things like cups and saucers and this and that, it's the second that those things have slipped. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for many years and you've been functional and important keeping those central things, central things. Some of you are baby Christians. You've been walking with the Lord just a few years and you can feel the draw to those lesser little things. Can I encourage you? Keep the blood of Jesus, the preaching of his word and the laying down of our lives as absolutely central. That's how we overcome. That's what Christian maturity looks like. That's what you want to aspire to and press on for. See, this is as real as it gets. And so we're going to honour that by just taking a moment to pray. We're going to take a moment to pray and you'll have a bit of quiet. And in that quiet, I want to pray that you would not be a casualty of war. And I'd like to pray as well that this church family would not be a casualty of war because Satan is raging, but Jesus is king. Brilliant. I'm glad you said that. We can pray that Satan's influence would be flattened as we go out with the word of our testimony do not live, love our lives so much as to shrink from death. Brilliant. Take a moment in your quietness and we'll pray before we sing.
Lord, we praise you that your word is so vivid and so clear. We thank you that this chapter shows us that we're in such, such a battle and that we're playing for keeps. Lord, we thank you that it explains, makes sense of so much of what we face and what we go through and why we find it difficult and why the Christian life is not as easy as we sometimes think it should be. But Lord, we want to be those who overcome. And we thank you that more than that, you want us to be those who overcome. And you have given us everything we need and more beside in the faithfulness and the victory of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he bled and died to pay for our sin and there is now for those in him no accusation that can stand. Praise you, Lord, for that. We pray to you that your word as it goes out flattens Satan's lies and brings new life to those who receive. Please, Lord, help us to be a church, people who proclaim, particularly the area of speak, your wonderful gospel truth. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who in every area of our life, whether it is our time, our energy, our manner, our finances, we would be those who lay down what we have for the furtherance of your kingdom, for the glory of Jesus, and for the saving of lost souls. Lord, please help us to overcome. When struggle and saints attacks come, make us wise to it. Please, Lord, help us to overcome. Please, Lord, rescue people in speak from the eternity of lostness that Satan has planned for them if they don't know you. Lord, we say that heaven is real and hell is real too. Please do your work amongst us for the glory of your name. Amen. And so I wonder, Joe, whether you could press that button because with this song that we're about to sing fits in so well with that. Can you see it? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. This is a song about Jesus and all that he has said and all that he has done and this is the way that we'll be to overcome. Let's stand and sing together.